The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, this is Glenn Lowry. This is The Glenn Show, the podcast coming to you from the Manhattan Institute in New York City, which sponsors The Glenn Show. We have a special edition today. Uh, we'll be discussing with a distinguished panel the ethics of racial identification. And we have the honor of the president of the Manhattan Institute, Raihan Salam, moderating the discussion. So I'm going to turn things over to him. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Glenn. Uh, I am joined today by, of course, our host, Glenn Lowry, the Merton Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences at Brown University, and the John Paulson Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Also, we have Camille Foster, founder and partner at Freethink Media, Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, and the Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, Shelby Steele. I want to start by asking all of you to reflect on black identity, what it means, why it matters, why it has endured, why it should or should not endure. And Camille, I wonder if you could get us started. <laughs> right out of the gate with the controversy. Um, well, first, I'm, I'm grateful, Glenn, for you to suggest that we ought to convene this conversation. Um, I, I think this is uh, critically important. Obviously, we have a lot of conversations about race in the, in the United States these days. Um, but I suspect what we all have in common is that we have a lot of concern about the way that those conversations are proceeding. Uh, I suspect where we also have some disagreement is around this question of racial identity. And what I think is important to bear in mind and I should probably start by saying I'm an individualist. Like my own perspective of myself isn't rooted in my race. It's rooted in my person. I, I believe that all of us have a particular dignity that allows us to be entitled to the rights and privileges um, afforded to ourselves. And that dignity is rooted in our humanity um, and not in our race. And for so much of this country's history, um, the race has been an obstacle to actually getting allowing people to enjoy all of the full rights and privileges of being an American. And there's been this process over the course of many decades, centuries, in fact, uh, to allow the, the various benefits of freedom to be given out to a broader and broader portion of the population. But there are still these enduring problems in our polity, these defects in terms of the amounts of wealth and prosperity that have been accrued, these persistent uh, patterns of kind of disadvantage and underperformance that kind of obsess us, um, but they obsess us in a particular way. And they tend to manifest themselves in these conversations that are largely framed by race. And part of what I am very concerned about is the degree to which race obstructs our ability to have sophisticated conversations about important, difficult topics um, the ways that we find to constantly 
reaffirm and re-enthrone race, uh, a concept that, you know, 20 odd years ago, I had a particular set of views and ideals about race that I suspect we're pretty compatible with most Americans, these, these basic notions of kind of the content of your character being the thing that was important. And I suspect most Americans bought into that. But today, it seems that there is a, a very determined effort to recenter race, to make people think first and foremost about the role of race in society and in their lives, to race themselves, to, to capitalize the be in black. Uh, and I think that that is an obvious move in the wrong direction. And I think part of what's enabled that move in the wrong direction is embracing a, a kind of notion of colorblindness without really and full-throatedly attacking the taxonomy of human races, the very notion that there are these differences that ought to be regarded or even kind of formally um, or systematically or kind of casually ignored. Uh, I think we need to go a step further uh, and we need to really embrace an ethic of regarding one another as individuals, which doesn't mean that we have to sacrifice uh, respect for history or an appreciation of culture, but it does mean that we have to think very differently about an ideology that we've all been very steeped in for a very long time and perhaps re-engage with frequently without even thinking about. Bob, you've devoted decades of your life to community uplift. You've been a civil rights activist. You've been someone who's worked in primarily black communities to help them uh, foster uh, these ideals of mutual aid and what have you. It seems that black identity is awfully important to you and the idea of collective black uplift is very important to you. When you hear Camille talk about the idea of moving beyond race, thinking primarily in terms of individuals, I'm curious to hear your reaction. You know, um, I, I grew up, uh, was born in the Depression in a segregated South Philadelphia small community <clears throat> where 95% of the households had a man and a woman raising children where elderly people could walk safely without fear of being assaulted by their grandchildren, never heard a gun fired nor babies shot in their cribs. And so I grew up with this strong sense of, 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 of being in the secure. But at the same time, whenever I went to the movies and saw people having fun, they were always white. <laughs> traveling places, eating uh, food. And so there was this conflict between the reality of what I was living and what I saw. And then when I was able to leave and get involved in, in the civil rights movement, uh, I, I ran into a conflict because many of, of, the, of the challenges that the civil rights movement, I, got, uh, I, I departed because it really sought integration and not desegregation. And, and when they were seeking a force busing for integration, I was against it, and which made me a pariah, because I believe the opposite of segregation is desegregation, not integration. And we, the very fact that we pressed, did, failed to distinguish a thing means that anything is all black is all bad. And so I believe that uh, racial identity is critical. That's why I embraced the the black power movement that I know that Shelby challenges, it, it morphed into something um, not helpful, but we must also look at its contribution. Civil rights movement never dealt with personal identity, nor did it stress uh, uh, upward mobility and, so, and, 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 um, and independence. The civil rights move, 
the black power movement assumed equality and sought the opportunity to pursue it. And so I think that, uh, th that it is important to be agents of your own uplift and we should instill in our people that you can be, have, uh, be, be intricately in, involved with your own race. At the same time, we can be a part of a larger ethnic group, too. In other words, saying that you're pro-black doesn't mean you're anti-post-racialism. Uh, uh, I think the two can coexist. Thank you very much, Bob. Shelby, I wonder if you could share some thoughts. Uh, you have spoken of the shock of freedom. You've written powerfully and movingly about the ways in which some of our racial boundaries are more psychological and internal in nature than they are societal or about legal institutions. Uh, I wonder how you think about black identity and its role in our public life today. Uh, well, today I think that uh, identity is often used as a, I think racial identity always, almost always has an element of corruption in it. It, it almost always, uh, not almost, it always seeks power and is about power. Uh, and the, you know, and then for the last, since the 60s, certainly, and I remember the Black Power Movement very, uh, very well. You know, none of us were really black enough. You were always trying to be blacker. And uh, <laughs> um, just, I love Richard Pryor's joke, black, was his poem, one word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you kind of, you know, if you think about it, you kind of say, this is, I grew up in the same kind of neighborhood that, that Bob just described. Uh, and the, there was family life and there were fathers in every house. Uh, there, the, there was, um, schools were terrible, but they even began to resist that. And, and uh, there was a real fundamental human coherence that we shared with all other people. My, I remember my father asking me in the 60s when I was into black power, well, what is identity? I haven't really answered him well yet. <laughs> um, he's born in the South in third grade education. Uh, if he would, doesn't know what the black identity is, I don't know who would. Um, I think we use it for, particularly today, we, well, we, have, we came to use it in the 60s as a kind of symbol of victimization. So it, when you were black, you were a victim. We put into place this idea that to be a, a strong and a down brother and sister, uh, you had to be uh, fighting and, and protesting uh, racism. And this, this, it implied a kind of political activism, the black identity. Um, and to some degree, I think that made some sense there because identity is always defensive. It's always defending against some larger force uh, uh, in the world. And, and so that's, that's what it was in the 60s. And uh, I sort of certainly was involved in it to a degree, but, but quickly grew out of it. Um, uh, you, you could begin to see that it, it really wasn't going anywhere. The problem today, I think, 
the, the problem we face as black Americans is not racism anymore. There's no doubt some racism out there. But that's just not, that's way down the list uh, of problems that we as black Americans face. Uh, and to still worry about our identity in terms of our history of victimization and protesting and fighting for blackness, uh, that proved to be a kind of wasted effort. It didn't lift us up. It confused us. It made us think race is really meaningful when there's really nothing to it. Uh, it it's, it's, an empty, it's a void. It's empty. It, it's something people go to when they want to do something a little, when they want to do something a little nefarious. Uh, if I try to tell you that I'm black and, and, and so forth, and therefore let's make a deal over here. Uh, <laughs> uh, is the way it goes. Our our black leadership today to, today is pretty much entirely devoted to precisely that use of identity as a wedge, as leverage uh, to gain power and money, and to get uh, organizations and and universities and so forth to give us things. Um. Well, my sense is that our, our great problem today uh, is not victimization and racism, but freedom. And we've used identity because we're afraid of freedom. Freedom is a fearful, awesome uh, thing to have to face up to, particularly after you've been through four centuries of oppression. Uh, and have really very little experience with anything remotely like freedom. But freedom is demanding, and, and, and uh, uh, it, it's, it, it asks everything of you. It makes you responsible for yourself in ways that are always going to be difficult and challenging. And so if you don't do well, you don't know how to proceed down that path, and we as blacks didn't in the 60s, how can you come out of centuries of oppression and know precisely what to do. It's taken us 70, 80 years now to begin to really think about what, what let's look at our real problems and stop, uh, uh, you know, thinking that somehow or other culture and identity is going to do anything for us. We have to understand those things don't count in freedom. What counts in freedom is all that boring stuff really difficult, demanding values, hard work, uh, family life, uh, responsibility, uh, same things that work for, for all human beings uh, are the only things that are going to ever work for black America. And the idea that our blackness is going to somehow help us or facilitate that is a delusion that, that we need to move on away from at this point uh, and be suspicious of uh, understand this is this is one of history's little traps. Sort of seduces you into thinking, well, your identity, if you're just black, that'll do it. No, it won't. It won't do it. And, and of course, all the statistics that we are all aware of uh, prove that. We're behind in almost everything of meaning in, in American life. Um, well, that's identity. Because identity is not um, it's not a muscle. It's not an action, an active force. It's an avoidance of the challenges of freedom. Anytime I see here anybody 
talking about identity today, and it's avoidance. Uh, Glenn. And, well, I'll, I'll, Glenn, go ahead. Oh, no, no <laughs> forgive me. Sorry for interrupting you. No, that's fine. Uh, Glenn, you've informed um, how the world thinks about ethnicity and social capital. One observation you've made about black Americans and the persistence of identities is a deceptively simple one. It's that if there were no barriers to intermarriage, if there were full integration, you would not see the persistence of a distinct identifiable group uh, with its own form of vernacular English, with its own cultural practices. You know, when you're looking at black Americans and indeed many other groups as well, there is a real persistence there that is a force that affects outcomes and social life, affects the distribution of resources and society and much else. One way that I think about this is that the force sustaining that distinctiveness could be status or it could be stigma, you know, both forms of it. So think about Jewish Americans, for example. Here is a group where, um, you know, large numbers of Jewish Americans outmarry, but perhaps less than you'd expect if they were just another European ethnic group. You know, that could be because this is a group where there are valuable goods. There is a, a kind of community-specific social capital that exists there. There's an attractive pull to remaining part of the group. But you could also say that in some contexts, in some environments, it's part of stigma. Uh, that partly it's because of the persistence of anti-Semitism and as Shelby was saying, that desire for some kind of um, defensive mentality. We are going to support and sustain our community that is under threat. When you think about the persistence of black identity, I'm curious how you think about it in the context of status and stigma, how you think about it in the context of the rewards offered by belonging to this group with a rich and distinct history and culture, um, you know, versus the extent to which that distinctiveness is driven by discrimination from the outside. Yeah. I mean, first, let me say, I have great respect for the positions that uh, Camille and Shelby have given voice to. And I certainly agree that, you know, the long term end game here uh, has to be one in which we envision if you will, the abolition of race or the transcendence of race. Um, I don't want an America 100 years from now or even 75 years from now in which we're in these silos based upon something that's relatively superficial that doesn't really define us. On the other hand, I think that, you know, if I say the black church, that, that that's a meaningful thing to say not merely as a matter of, well, the whites won't let us sit in the pew, but as a matter of there's a foundation here. There, there are uh, generations of cultural and spiritual rootedness here. There's a narrative in the black church. There's music in the black church. There's power in the black church. It reaches people. It's meaningful to people. If I say the black family if I encourage people to adopt orphan children who are black based in part upon a sense that the black family needs support, that we need to pull together, that's a way of mobilizing people on behalf of a social good. It's an affirmation. So whereas the race hustlers, and they are plentiful, will strategically deploy, just as Shelby has said brilliantly and more than once in his books, 
They will deploy. They will play the race card. They will use race as a dodge, as a power-grabbing move. And we could give many examples. Whereas that's certainly true, and it is something to be objected to strenuously. It's bad. It's bad for even black people seen as a collective, but it's bad for our country, and it's uh, taking us in the wrong direction. Whereas that's certainly true. The collective action problem, how do you get people to pull together in the same direction on behalf of goals that none of them can achieve on their own, requires some kind of narrative. I mean, think about the role that nationalism plays in the construction of collective goods in the welfare state or in on behalf of defending the country against external threat. People are called based upon their sense of fealty and connection to the country. We are Americans. We're not citizens of the world, although we are citizens of the world, of course. But we're not only that, we're Americans. And that has meaning to us in terms of our history, our culture, our narratives, and our self-definition. Likewise, we black Americans in the 21st century, the descendants of those who had been enslaved and who labored to become fully equal citizens, there's a story there. I want my children to know that story. Among other stories. I don't want that to be the final word. I don't want that to be their defining. If you will, here's a suit of clothes adequate to the task at hand that we wear lightly, not that we wear as a shroud, that we wear with the ability to take it off and to stand outside. But I don't think yet, even now in the year 2022, we're at the point where we can afford to give up the leverage and the power that Robert Woodson in his work in terms of grassroots organization has leveraged uh, on more than one occasion of getting people together, encouraging to do hard work on behalf of collective goals like raising our children, maintaining order in our communities and doing honor to the sacrifices of our ancestors. Let so me, I, may I, may I just uh, add to that? I, I agree with, with Shelby, but I think the, the reason that this debate got going is because of our request of Shelby to sign the letter supporting Clarence Thomas, and he objected because we were all black signatures. Uh, and I think it's because this was a tactic that we applied. It wasn't a, it wasn't a philosophical statement we were making that the, the white elitist left has appropriated the wounds and suffering of black America and weaponized it against the values of this nation. And they're using it in the black uh, civil rights leadership and the black caucus are allowing that, uh, that appropriation to occur. And, and so they're using it to say in the name of black people. So since they uh, attack Clarence Thomas in the name of black people, we think we thought that the messengers pushing back against that should be should be black. That's why we came together as blacks to write this letter. And as a consequence, it's got about 25 different organizations, most of them black, uh, in, 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 who published it and gave it it, it gave it uh, uh, some, some publicity. So the point and I agree with you, Shelby, but but what's happening is these these race hustlers are using the conditions, the, the birth defect of this nature, slavery, and as a bludgeon against the country, and so therefore we need to push back. But it's, but it's also doing, it's happening at the expense of those at the bottom. Anytime you generalize about a group, you, you cannot generalize about all black people, all women, 
Whenever you then try to apply remedies as the right, as the left does, it always helps those at the top at the expense of those at the bottom. When the Me Too movement starts talking about women, uh, and so who benefited from them? The women that were on the casting couches in Hollywood. Women are to get on boards of directors. Women are to be hired. But what about the, 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 the black women who are in prisons uh, being systematically raped? There was a two-hour special documentary uh, on where they quoted these women. Every one of the victims were black. Every one of the victimizers were black. But it did not generate any outcry for support, for justice for these women, because it didn't fit the racial narrative. And that's how, in your understanding, how race is being used to really uh, 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 disadvantage people who are poor and black. And so I agree with you that we can't allow it to happen, but our use of it, we have to be strategic. There are times as in the case with Clarence Thomas and others, we must come together to push back against the black left who are mis- uh, misusing race. But we also should concentrate on, we're doing this in the service of eliminating race so we can concentrate on the real crisis facing in this country. And that's the moral and spiritual freefall that is consuming low-income people and, and others. Shelby, well, I, if you can, please. I, I mean, I agree with, Ninety-nine percent of what you said. Well, maybe, maybe eighty-nine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> two strikes, not three. <laughs> uh, two cheers, not three. But my my feet after wrestling with this for a lifetime, my, I, I my feeling is very simple. Race is absolutely always, with no exceptions whatsoever, poison. You, you can't understand it if you don't understand poison. And what you say there, for example, that, you know, that, well, a little bit of poison over here is okay. And a little bit, and, and you, you start to make distinctions. Uh, I want to see some white people support the media being fair to Clarence Thomas. I want them, I want them to, to, on a human level, on, by using race to to attack Clarence Thomas, that's the evil. That's the poison. And uh, uh, a, a, a group, I certainly want them to treat Clarence Thomas in the right way, uh, but but not by using, not by committing the same crime, not by using using race all over again now in the name of the good rather than bad, but but. Using it all over again, it's it's too it's dangerous. It's it's none of us are smart enough to find a good, effective, you know, morally clean way to use race. It's always a little dirty, and that dirtiness, over time, envelops the whole institution, whatever it may be. Uh, so I, it's poison. Sometimes the venom anything. of the snake. Sometimes it's, the venom of the snake has to be used to develop the antivenom. Sometimes, sometimes well. not, it's not obvious that that's necessary here. I mean, I, I want to just say that I one, I recognize all of the, the goodwill um, in, in the conversation. And I recognize a lot of the you know, extraordinarily hard work that's been done. Um, you know, Bob, the, the work that you've done with your organization is, is laudable. 
Um, and I don't take anything away from that by adopting the perspective that I have now with respect to race. Um, I, I would have to say that I stridently agree with Shelby, though, that there is a very real sense in which um, I think it is impossible to divorce a concept, a notion like blackness, for example, from the kind of toxic milieu that it was forged in and the purpose that it was forged for. It was meant to divide. It was meant to dehumanize. And there's a very real sense in which a lot of that ideological baggage is always carried along with it, however we deploy the concept. And I, I greatly appreciate as well, Glenn, your um, rousing uh, speech encouraging us to, to support one another's families and to come together to find terms upon which that we can come together and agree to work towards some common purpose. Uh, but I think two things are also two related things are true that relate to that. One is that it is entirely possible to forge those bonds in other ways um, and in, in deeper, more meaningful ways, I think. Um, local communities are li- largely the ones that are actually bearing the burden of suffering through you know, the, the spikes in crime and not kind of black people corporately. I think there's a lot of senses in which, especially I think the point, I can't remember who made it a moment ago about all of the benefits that accrue to people kind of at the top of the pyramid when you have a racial reckoning and a couple of people move up a couple of offices and they were already making several hundred thousand dollars a year. Now they're making half a million a year and it's great for all of them if you can launch your new DEI business or get some new government contracts, but it does not help people at the lower end. Um, And Thinking more specifically about the kinds of problems, more practically about the kinds of problems we're trying to address, having a much higher resolution is going to require us to get beyond the confines of race. The disparity that interests me isn't the disparity between white kids and black kids in elementary school. It's not the disparity between white teenagers and black teenagers in uh, uh, attaining acceptance to to top flight universities. It's the disparity between children who are succeeding and children who are not. It's the fact that we recognize the success success sequence actually gives us the keys to what's necessary to succeed. And there is no way to to unrace yourself and to take advantage of the benefits of rightness to kind of put things in the way that uh, uh, someone from the left might frame it. And in much the same way to frame it in a way that might be a little bit more palatable to someone who would regard themselves as conservative. I don't know that trying to build alliances of concern along racial lines isn't likely is actually likely to win out against the kind of dominant perspective when it comes to blackness in America. I think we actually have to have a more ambitious goal and strategy um, and to have a higher resolution approach to thinking about problems and talking about problems. I want to underscore something here. I'm struck by the fact that uh, actually, uh, you know, among the four of you, there's actually a fair bit of agreement about what we see as an attractive moral outcome over the very long term. I think that all of you agree that, you know, being seen as an individual uh, has value. But one thing I detected uh, both in Glenn and Bob's remarks is this idea that there are certain kinds of sacrifices that are appropriate to make in the name of solidarity. That is, you know, one version of your um, sensibility, Camille, and, and this will be ungenerous, but I'm you know, curious to hear your reaction, but also Glenn's, is that, you know, essentially what you're saying is that we live in a much freer society now. We live in a society in which one can have more agency and freedom of action and that it is a moral imperative to claim that and to claim that individualism to derace oneself. But another view is that that 
poses a kind of collective action problem in which you have people who have the ability to capitalize on those opportunities uh, through the kind of attenuation of those rigid racial ties. And then what you see is the defection of people like you from this kind of larger collective public good of acting on behalf of a racial group that has been stigmatized and excluded. I wonder if that makes sense to you, what your reaction to that is. And I also want to hear from Glenn, if that sounds roughly right to him, that part of what we're saying is that, yes, it's a good and healthy aspiration to be free um, of those group obligations, but those group obligations really bite right now and that uh, there is a responsibility for those who have that role. How how do they bite? Well, well, I'm I'm gonna right. just want to throw out the idea to well, to no, but I mean, you. I mean, that's a, that's a, it seems to me a key point. You you bite? Do you mean racism? That people are still being victimized by racism? I, I'm just trying to really get a. Well, I'm I, of, I, no. I, I'm trying to kind of advance what I take to be part of Glenn's view. So maybe he would be well. The collective action problem, just very straightforwardly, you have goals toward which you would like to mobilize people to achieve those goals. Each one individually might not have a, the interest to make the sacrifices if they only thought of it in their own terms. But if they see themselves as part of a collective, and I gave the example of nationalism, you have a country, you have people asked to sacrifice, to pay taxes, to fight and die if it comes to that. And underneath that is a sense of identity. It's a sense of, in this case, Americanness, to which they feel a certain degree of obligation or responsibility. It's just What do you analogy. do when racism is what, gone? What I'm saying is the black church, I give that as a concrete example, is an institution. It has a history. It has a narrative. It has a sense of self-understanding, and it gives meaning to people's lives. It's but not it'll only never, it, it'll never be the same, Glenn. Okay, you, freedom, you, we were, we're in freedom now. The black church was formed when we were in naked oppression. Today we're we're in freedom. Racism is not there. You can worship any way you want. Uh, we're so free we don't know what to do with it. Uh, no, we're in agreement the, about the, that. We're in agreement about that, Shelby. But I'm, I, thinking, I'm a I'm a I'm a jazz fan. I love. I love the music, follow it way too much. Because uh, <laughs> it's, 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 to me, a, a rare, magnificent creation that does come out of black, the black experience. But that experience doesn't exist anymore. Racism is simply not, not a problem. It doesn't deserve the whole, a cultural response. Well, Shelby, those are two different I think things. What I, I, what, what I find disturbing is that the left, both uh, the elite left, and I are using race. Mm-hmm. Yes, they to are to the you, disadvantage totally of poor people, and they are dying as a consequence of their misuse of it. Yes, so absolutely. it's it's. Absolutely. But if you're not going to confront that reality with some idealized version of post-racism and just say, "Well, we're just it doesn't exist anymore," so they'll de- we'll just act like it doesn't exist. Well, no, I, I don't you got th- to take action. I think in those places to confront those who are misusing race. And the way we do it is to gather groups who are suffering the problems, like the mothers who lost children to homicide, to stand up to the black left and say, we are against defund the police. And we, uh, and so it, it, is, it, is, it is important to have those suffering the problem as why the symbols you, why of that pushback. Ex- why would you exclude whites? From the letter of protest, because it doesn't have the same power 
when black, in other words, you when, when someone derives their moral authority by saying they represent you, when you stand up yourself and say they don't represent me, that undermines the moral authority. But if I go in and say, oh, I have to have a white person on my arm to walk in to claim it. No, I mean, it's a strategic move, Shelby. It's not a ideological block. It's a strategic move. You're saying you have to have a black person, only black people on your arm. No, 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 I'm no, 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 no. What he's you're, saying, you're, what he's you're saying is they, they don't speak for black people. The, the message that we want to give is those blacks who have appropriated race on behalf of race card playing nonsense don't speak for black people. Exactly. Can, so can so in order to people? say that, there are two things you could do. One of them is I'm black and they don't speak for me. The other is blackness is a fiction. Nobody speaks for black people. We opted for That's the right. former mm-hmm. move. Yeah, and, and again, I well, you, well I, identity. I, let me. Let me no, it's, it's it's perfectly fine. I'm happy to defer to you. No, no, please let me. <laughs> let me. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. That's the that that's the decision that's being made. I just think that it's it's impossible to to not. Well, no, it's not impossible. It's imperative that we take a look at what the costs might be, and to the extent we are refurbishing, sustaining notions of racial difference, a, a notion of of there even being any authority whatsoever or respectability and asserting that you are speaking on behalf of a particular group of people, that there is a particular opinion that is held by all people that look a particular way. And that is something that we ought to be wary of. And, and I, I would go a step sure. further and say, it, you're absolutely right, Bob. It is imperative that you are pushing back against you know, dangerous currents in our culture and that you're confronting people who insist on and framing things with respect to race in order to derive some sort of cultural or political power. At this point, we can't even talk about student loans without invoking race and talking about it because it's it's a powerful tool. That said, the best way to actually undermine that is to acknowledge that this tactic is being deployed and two, not to give even the appearance that this is a respectable way to conduct business, to focus, I think, very narrowly and specifically on the defects of the policies that are being proposed and to provide affirmative solutions, like better alternative approaches. And I, I think you've mentioned a few times, um, Glenn, this, the, the black church and other kind of valuable institutions that exist that that have some sort of a racial context. I'm I'm not interested in obliterating the black church. I'm not interested in in telling people that they shouldn't think about their church as a black church, but I do think a lot about the a, a young a young pastor who's planting a church today, a brand new church, who insists on it being kind of affirmatively unapologetically black and a lot of things go along with that. And that is something that happens today and most of those people are buying into a set of kind of ideological priors that are wildly inconsistent, I think with progress and certainly wildly inconsistent with an individualist perspective of, of how to think about free people operating in a free society. There's a real sense in which our embrace of this concept, whatever the advantages we imagine we're deriving from it, are an obstacle to some of the broader philosophical projects that we might want to engage in. And I think at a minimum, it's, it's worth contemplating, you know, we had the March on Washington, we had King give his I Have a Dream speech, and it was it was and is beautiful and powerful. But at the same time, it's imperative to note that no, they're not white girls and black girls, they're just girls. And that is a that is a that's a step 
in a particular direction. There's a, you know, a particular line that's being drawn in the sand there. And I think well, it's, that, that, it's that worthwhile. That is a, white, a whitewashing of history. Look, look. I don't, they, I don't they, think they, that's a, I'm not asking church. us to change our perspective on what happened historically. I'm talking about the way forward. Guys, hate to break it to you, but when she reacts to your holiday gift with, honey, you shouldn't have. Not necessarily a good thing. So I have two awesome gift suggestions and a special offer from Cozy Earth, the brand with thousands of five-star reviews, including mine. My first suggestion, Cozy Earth Luxury Bedding. This is some good stuff. I've used it myself. It's very soft and comfortable. Cozy Earth Bedding is made using the finest premium viscose from highly sustainable bamboo. Their bedding is naturally temperature regulating, so they'll sleep comfy all year round. I sure do. Here's my second suggestion. Cozy Earth's luxurious loungewear collection from their ultra soft lounge pants, tees, and pajamas for women to their popular joggers, pullover crews, and hoodies for men. Cozy Earth loungewear is designed to flatter every body type. And check out their premium plush and waffle bath towels. They'll love those too. Plus, every Cozy Earth bedding item comes in a beautiful reusable canvas bag. No gift wrapping required. It's really easy. Save 40% now on Cozy Earth bedding, loungewear, pajamas, and towels. Hurry, the holiday offer ends soon. Go to CozyEarth.com forward slash Glenn. And be sure to enter Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to save 40%. That's CozyEarth.com forward slash Glenn. You know, the reason the reason why the, the left that we are counterculture now is because our our uh, our inability to communicate important values and convince people that those values are important. And that is uh, what the left does. And I think Ralph Nader is a perfect example of how you market ideas and principles when he comes before the Congress to, to convince the Congress that we need to regulate automobiles. He comes with a weeping parents of a 16-year-old who lo- was lost in a Pinto, a wrinkled fender of a Pinto with blood on it. And then he says, this is the consequence of that policy. Now, let me tell you what changes have to be made. By contrast, conservatives will come with four white guys with blue suits, with ties, with charts, with data. Who wins that fight? And so I think it's important that you have to have the right symbols. I choose to take the people suffering the problem who lost children. And when they say that we must stop talking about white people for a year and address the enemy within, that is that has much more power than if I were to come with some interracial group uh, armed with uh, uh, some niceties of post-racialism. I, I just want to get a word in here because so much is flying by. I think you guys are overreacting. 
I think you're basically right. And I think the long run that you envision and I envision are very similar long runs. Uh, it's just that I think that the abolitionist move, the principled rejection of the category race on behalf of an ideal is, as Bob has said, strategically surrendering too much. And I also think it's a little bit ahistorical. I, I just want it for a moment. The African Methodist Episcopal Church, I'm talking about Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, these guys at the end of the 18th century in Philadelphia, where slavery was still running strong, founded an institution that is now a global institution of black people striving to do exactly with their freedom what Shelby would have them do, determine their own fates, take responsibility for their lives and for the raising of their children and so forth and so on, nested within a certain narrative, a certain sense of our, quote-unquote, our history. Now, I have many ancestors, and some of them are European. Uh, uh, 23andMe tells me some of my ancestors are European. But the account I give of from whence I have come is deeply nested within this African-American history. And all I'm saying is it's not yet time to throw that over, even as we understand the deeper philosophical truth of transracial humanism as the goal toward which we should all be striving. Well, you're, you're fighting a straw man. We, we would never throw it over. Uh, how could you, why would you want to? I would, I've been studying black American culture all my life. I love, uh, it is, that would be a word stronger than identification. Uh, it, it is, it has made me who I am. And for, I'm grateful for it. And yet the, the, the world works by evolution. It evolved. It, it transforms. We won our fight, long fight against racism, for example, in 1964 when the Civil Rights Bill was passed. What is that, 60, 70 years ago? We won. It wasn't manifest in reality yet entirely, but increasingly we have, we have just become, you know, more and more and more and more free. Uh, and at this point, it seems to me we are we are balking in the face of freedom. We are intimidated by what it asks of us, and that uh, some of that is that we're we're going to be sort of ripped away from that narrative that you you mentioned, um, and we and we're gonna we're gonna have to invent ourselves as free men and women, and we're gonna have to change what it means to be black. And, and I would, I would. It doesn't just mean. It doesn't just mean responding to racism and hatred. That's it. Did at one time, but it, today, we black people, our biggest problem is modernity, the modern world. We're unprepared to live in it, to thrive in it. That's our problem. And maybe there's a little racism in there somewhere, but the real problem is. California last year, uh, black uh, black kids who graduated from high school read at an eighth grade level. That's the problem. But Shelby, you address yourself to black people. You say we. That has an antecedent. The we that you're I, talking well, of to course. there. How, how, but you see, this is what I'm saying. False man. A well, false, I'm, a straw I mean, man. I'm, I'm, I, I, I suppose that I'm, I'm, saying, I'm guilty I, of I, that. Because <laughs> because yeah, I, I, I would generally I would generally not advise regarding them primarily in that way, because there is I mean, 
we, we could talk about California schools, L.A. schools in particular, and the underperformance that we see. And we know that blacks are overrepresented yep. in those statistics, that they're more likely to do poorly. But there is a bunch of other kids who also do poorly in those school systems. And the reasons that they do poorly, generally speaking, have a lot of the same um, components. Sure. They're not reading. They um, aren't reading in their homes. They're watching too much television. Um, they, they, in many instances, don't have two-parent households. We can observe the same sorts of stuff when we talk about criminal justice issues. Um, incarceration, for example, we know that it's not that you know 90% of inmates are black, but close to, what, I think it's 80-odd percent of inmates are, come from these fatherless homes. They don't, they don't have fathers in their homes. Um, particularly young men who sure. end up getting incarcerated. That, that is actually a far more meaningful insight than talking about the kind of racial disparities there, which doesn't suggest that there aren't community and cultural dynamics that are at work. But, you know, we're here in Manhattan now, at least you and I are, Glenn, and I've, I've lived in New York for most of the last 15 years. And I don't know that it serves anyone particularly well to talk about you know, black outcomes in New York City and to include myself and my wife in those data points and also to be talking about the people who happen to live in Bed-Stuy. In fact, I was a resident of Bed-Stuy, but I was a gentrifier. I was paying an exorbitant amount of money to live in those communities, hoping that they would change in a positive way. I wasn't one of them. So even the use of the the kind of us and the sure. we in those contexts is a bit is a bit odd. And I think that we looking for I'm not looking to close a door and to ignore history. My, my goal always is opening doors. I want more people to be able to imagine that 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 uh, uh, rich history at the AME church is something that they can imagine themselves as a part of. And I want young people who imagine themselves as black, who are told, you know, during Black History Month, these are your heroes to know that, no, you're not limited to that. Those can be some heroes that you adopt, but there's a universe of other people who don't look anything like you, who come from distinctly different backgrounds, but with whom you might be able to find some sort of sense of solidarity. There is a, a, a kind of a built-in limiter so your cultural inheritance is the inheritance of the world. You know, what you're saying is that you want to claim ownership and you want your experience to inform that of people regardless of, um, you know, their ethnic origins, their ascribed race. That's certainly, that's certainly part of it. Um, and I, I could probably be more specific and talk about the classical liberal tradition that I'm most interested in, the, the progress that's been made in Western societies more broadly. I mean, I, I think there's, there's a narrative about the progress of black people in America since the period of slavery, overcoming civil rights. And it is an extraordinary and important story that all Americans ought to take an interest in. But there's also this broader narrative of the, the struggle for human freedom. The fact that most of our ancestors, regardless of where we come from and what we look like, were subjugated in some way, shape or form, were, were deprived of the right to live the kinds of extraordinary lives that we do today. And I think that there's something very rich about nesting that story of struggle for freedom in America by the descendants of slaves um, in that broader story of this this struggle for human freedom writ large, that this is always something that has had to happen, that this is always something that we've done um, to, together, I think that it makes it actually more valuable and not less. It enhances it. But Glenn, you can do that without effacing your own ethnic identity. And, and I just want to, if, with the moderator's permission, play a devil's advocate here because I can hear what a critique might sound like. A critique of the position that Camille and Shelby have adopted might go as follows. 
Look at other ethnic groups. Look at the Jews. Look at the Irish Catholics. I mean, they have, they have suffered discrimination, whatever, whatever. You'd never tell them the solution to your problem is to forget about your identity and forget exactly. about your history. You, you tell them that there are two different things. There's the civic— but we're not doing that. Okay. You are. Then, no. Then you, then you can answer the critic with yeah. that re- retort. Yeah. But let me just finish making a statement. Um, there's a civic realm. We are citizens of a republic. We have duties and obligations as such. They yeah. transcend our race. Then there's the communal realm. Mm-hmm. Marriage patterns are what they are. Residential communal patterns are what they are. Religious affiliation is what they are. Cultural orientations are what they are. The two things are distinct. We can insist on blindness to race in the civic realm and nevertheless affirm the importance not of race as a phys- physiology, but uh, physiognomy, but, but of uh, race as an ethnicity. We can affirm the uh, thickness and the content of that inheritance uh, uh, at the same time, we can do both of those things at the same time. Yeah, so you know. a critic might say, and it's only blacks, just to finish this. Here's how the critic would go. It's only black people that we see up there saying that we have to eschew our blackness in order to solve this problem. Everybody else, you wouldn't tell Jews not to be Jewish. If we applied the logic of this argument to uh, the uh, national identity and aspirations of the Jewish people, we would get, uh, I think, something that would be a historical absurdity. So you know, what you're I, talking uh, about is leveraging me... group identity, leveraging a sense of pride in group identity and this collective cultural inheritance uh, for uplift. And, yes, and that's exactly. against the case for defecting. So, it's, so there Correct. are some people who are in a position to defect who don't have to kind of contribute to that common store. And what you're saying is, no, don't do that. Actually sustain that as a vehicle for uplift. I'm saying that's one way of living. I, w- of living. I wouldn't yeah. judge the defector. They're free to make whatever choices they want. But I want to affirm the dignity and the legitimacy of embracing the ethnic uh, heritage. Let me Let me just say that I had some many years ago, I debated Julius Chambers, who was a Harvard lawyer, black, who headed the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. We were doing this before the New York Bar Association and was over the issue of of desegregation versus integration. And I midway through the debate, I said, Julius, we've got two circumstances. Circumstance A, where the school is all black, where there's a presence of excellence. School B, where it's it's integrated where there's diminished excellence. Where should we send our children? He said, school B. I said, if that's what you believe, then then this debate is over. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, and, and so that's, that's, that, that's one element. But uh, to, to Glenn's point, uh, the Vietnamese came here after the war. Those who were sponsored by, uh, by, by uh, families didn't poorly. But those who struggled... And they and, and it is a section in Houston, the Bel Air section, where Vietnamese boat people came and congregated, and they established an entrepreneurial enclave. Today, there are about twenty thousand of them there. They've got newspapers. Uh, it's called Little Vietnam. In Los Angeles, there's Little Tokyo. Chinatowns. Every other ethnic groups can know what it's like to have dual citizenships. Why can't blacks have dual citizenship? Why can't we affirm the fact? That we are black and, uh, and, 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 and all, but also we are a part of, of this country. I mean, wh- why do you say that anytime that there is a coalescence of blacks are coming together in solidarity, that somehow that we shouldn't do that, but other groups are, are, are celebrated? 
Well, it sounds so innocent, doesn't it? <laughs> it it's, it's just sounds so innocent. Is it, what's the deal? Now, you know, use certain examples I'll skip, but that's the way poison spreads. It's just a little bit. It's not a big. Come on. <laughs> it, it, what's wrong with the, What about the dignity? The, you know, the, it, because that won't work. That won't get you anywhere. Identity is the result of human behavior. It is not the creator of great things. It doesn't create a damn thing. It is the result. And uh, I, I am proud of, of what black Americans have contributed to music. There's nothing comparable in the in the on, on the whole globe. I mean, it, it it I mean, it really does in the most simplistic emotional way make me feel proud. That 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 does not mean that the nation I live in has any any obligation to me and my race. They don't. And when they when they did, you saw what what had, what that was about. Um, we, we we one does not preclude the other. That's my point. I, you, can, you can you can celebrate. You can be happy on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> there, are a lot of people out there, there are a lot of people out there drinking who aren't Irish. That's, that's, that's very true. Right. I, I, I suppose my, my perspective is, is probably a bit more, not probably, it is more strident than that. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't believe in unearned pride. Um, I, I believe that pride is, is something that you earn and it's something that you earn through action. I also don't believe in, in collective uh, uh, achievement in that way. I don't, I don't really believe that black people anymore, the Jewish people or white people kind of have a, a collective ownership of, of music that. that they've kind of made. Or, or well, the, the, the phrase that was used a moment ago was that black people have made these contributions to music. That is, it's certainly true that there are these kind of cultures that can in some way, shape, or form contribute to music. But the important delineation, like making a real distinction between individual achievement and cultivating a sense of pride in oneself and the kind of counterfeit pride that I've actually seen. I've, I've encountered it amongst younger people who talk about their blackness and how they're young kings or something along those lines. There's, there's something very empty and hollow about that. And, and again, at a minimum, one has to recognize that there is a very real possibility that people will feel encouraged to, to, to pursue that sort of rather cheap, counterfeit sense of their own self-worth and dignity as opposed to really embracing the possibility of creating something grand yourself. I don't, I don't think there's a, a need for there to be any kind of competition between kind of black cultural contributions or white cultural contributions. There's this beautiful passage from Zora Neale Hurston in Dust Tracks in the Road where she talks about uh, this, this notion of race pride and race consciousness and says explicitly that, you know, there, there is no, uh, that, that Einstein is the one who, who achieved particular results that Carver achieved particular results. And they didn't do that on behalf of a race. And that in a very real sense, if we have this sense of collective achievement and this sense of race pride, then we should naturally have this sense of collective failure and race shame. And that either both of those things are in a very real sense, like wrong and disadvantageous and that there, there is a better way for us to cast ourselves into the world. And again, we, we, I, I think we were having lunch earlier, Rehan, and I said, um, that we, we, I have this, this perspective and perhaps it's a little idealistic. I will acknowledge as much and we enter the world as we find it. Um, 
But that said, we can certainly articulate a certain philosophy, embrace a philosophy of our own. And I mean, in my particular case, I've decided that I, I will not race myself. And it's not a matter of being ashamed of being black or having any sort of hangups about that at all. It's a determination to live my life on my own terms, to have my, my dignity be rooted in my individual person. And it doesn't rob anyone else of their choice to live in a particular way. Um, but I do think that there are real meaningful advantages um, to thinking about issues in a race neutral way, or perhaps an abolitionist way, maybe even eliminationist is a, a better um, word to use uh, in that context. I got to say something because we started here with Bob's reference to the letter that he and I authored and that we gathered co-signatories for supporting Justice Clarence Thomas and denouncing those who would call Justice Thomas and Uncle Tom because they disagree with his jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. And I want to call to our attention the fact, the historical fact, that when the National Museum of African American History and Culture was stood up, there was no recognition of Justice Clarence Thomas, the longest serving member of the high court, highest court of this country, as an African-American whose achievements deserve to be honored. Now, some of us here, like Shelby and me, are black conservatives. <laughs> okay, unabashed, unapologetic. That's a meaningful category, mm -hmm. as is Justice Clarence Thomas. I'm proud of him. Okay? No. Not in some metaphysical, he's black, I'm black, and therefore I achieved when he achieved. Exactly. But in the concrete yeah. historical narrative sense that he came up out of Pinpoint, Georgia, mm -hmm. he thought for himself through Yale Law School and all the rest, mm -hmm. and he achieved what he has achieved on behalf of this country and his people. Then, his then, people. Then why would you preclude white people? I, I don't preclude white people from being proud of him. They can also be proud of him. But I'm proud of him. Why? They signed the okay, letter. I'm going to let Bob answer that. Because <laughs> we've already answered it, but I'm going to let know, Bob answer Shelby, you, you know, you know, you, because it would, if, if white people had signed it, it would have been dismissed, and he would have, they would have just, it, 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 may I finish? It would have just uh, contributed to this narrative that he's just a shell, a, a shell for conservatives. It would have been totally dismissed. People would have expected a conservative to do have a multiracial response. But the power of it came from the fact that the left was saying they are the legitimate spokesperson for black American and they are uh, against Thomas, but a substantial number of blacks stood up and, and, and stood for him and pushed back against that. And it had the impact that we were looking for. Just like when he went, so let me just finish. When, Tom, for six months, when he was nominated, I spent nonstop in low-income black southern neighborhoods and getting black parents to go to those senatorial offices to lobby to get him. That's why the polls were 60 percent of low-income blacks supported Clarence Thomas's ascension to the courts. And, they, and, and that's one of the reasons why it happened. Now, should I have not done that and say, well, I want to get white people to come with me also uh, no, it, that would have been strategically, un, we made an impact because 60% of black people polled, low-income blacks, supported this man's nomination. And that's why, strategically, it worked. Now, you might not have done it that way. You would have first said, no, I, got, no. I can't just go here with all black folks. I got to have some white folks. 
to show no, to show solidarity so that we are transracial. No, that that no, I, I you you keep assigning to me both of sorry you, <laughs> some, some idealism, some idealism. You right, you you, guess, you read you know, it the right way. Days, <laughs> you read it the uh, right way, Shelby. You got the wrong. You, you got the wrong man. I'm still back in 1964, Black Power. I'm uh, not. Uh, you know that's that's more my natural cast. Uh, but that's that is my point. Why uh, I, I Clarence Thomas is a, is a good friend of mine. Has been for thirty some years now. Um, I I love to see him supported in every way. I think he's the best mind on the court. Period. So forth and so on. I don't need to write a letter that excludes white people in order to support that. If, I just, why, if I, we I had, that. we would have been ignored. Strategically, it worked. That's the point. You missed you missed that. No, but you're using race as a point. Yes. No, no. Using, Just, uh, you're saying I, if, I, if I kick white people no, out, I got a little, it's more, not, uh, black, a little more black. You, I wonder use, if I the can just, you uh, use the venom of the snake. And so white people have to be on the side. You use the venom of the snake to create the anti-venom. Guys, I wonder if I can uh, just move us. That's in a, what you do. That's what you. That's what in you a different think. direction. No, it works. <laughs> ask anybody venom, who's been venom. bitten by a snake. They tell you it's the venom of the snake that killed them. Okay, they'd have been dead. They'd have been dead if you were a doctor. I don't know about snakes. They would have died. They would have died if you were the physician, man. Okay, I want to. No, we can't use a snake's venom. I'd like to raise a different set of issues. So no. if you're looking at uh, the black American population, it is markedly different today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. You now have a rising proportion of the black population that is foreign born. You have, particularly in younger cohorts, more and more intermarriage. Uh, when you're looking at the black elite, when you're looking at the most highly educated, affluent black Americans, this is a group, particularly when you're looking at younger cohorts, that looks very different from the multi-generational community of black Americans who are the descendants uh, of American slaves. Yeah. And I wonder, um, Camille, if you could offer some thoughts, and I'd like to hear from all of you on this, on what that might mean for this language of solidarity cultural persistence, what we're talking about, uh, about the politics of black identity. Camille, what do you see happening as the black population is looking much more diverse uh, and where uh, there's much more uh, integration into what you might call the multi-ethnic mainstream? Well, it's funny. I, I have this uh, uncomfortable sense sometimes where I, I'm like at a dinner party and there's a, you know, the, everything is set up really nicely and there's a, a tablecloth and I just rip the tablecloth off and then all the plates go sprawling as well. I mean, the reality is that I just, I do not think about populations in that way. I mean, the diversifying of the, the kind of black people in America is precisely what you would expect. Black people, as uh, James Baldwin said during his debate with William F. Buckley, just like everybody else, like they want the same things as everybody else. They are inherently diverse because they are individuals. And this is the appropriate way, I think, to, to think about them and to think about data like that. The reality is that the, the similarities between young, college-educated, pre-med black student and high school dropout 
black student living in a completely different part of the country are probably not all that great. And they likely have far more similarities with people who are part of their cohort, who, who live near them, who speak the same sort of English they do. Like this, this is the reality. And there is a, a real sense in which much of our conversation about important issues like diversity, for example, have been completely hijacked by the way that we think about race and identity in this country. We have a very narrow, myopic, kind of shade-obsessed notion of diversity, when in fact we, we have perhaps ceded far too much to the people who talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion these days by allowing that definition of diversity to be the one that dominates. The one that ought to dominate is one that recognizes that in any room, even amongst the four of us, as we've demonstrated very ably during, through our conversation, there is profound diversity amongst individuals, regardless of what they happen to look like. And if you apply for a job, the notion that we have too many of those people here right now because we've got our quota of black people because it's sort of demographically in line with the population in the community – like that can't be the way that we want um, to 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 sort of have society work. So this ab- abolitionist sensibility that you bring to these debates about the ethics of black identity, is it fair to say that in this world in which this drive for individualism, individual distinction, uh, the call it the weakening of some of these collective ties, is it your view that your way of thinking is ultimately the wave of the future? I, I don't know if it's the wave of the future. I certainly hope it is. I do think that recognizing, seeding our sense of people's dignity in their individual person and not attaching it or attributing it to their race. Like I think a celebration, for example, like Pride Month, for example, there is a sense in which one can totally understand the desire to assert your pride on the basis of something that you've been discriminated against with respect to for a very long period of time. But beyond some point, this could become deleterious. And I think that we probably surpassed that point with respect to gays in this country who have secured the right to marry one another, for example. Um, and perhaps we need to, to rejigger the laws um, uh, around that. But I think in general, like there has been a cultural shift there that is one that is worth celebrating. Um, I think much the same thing is true about race in this country. I, I have the autonomy to be able to live my life on my own terms. And to the extent that there are societal and social problems that need to be addressed, even ones that disproportionately impact black people, the remedies to those problems are almost certainly not resting in whether or not they regard themselves as black or um, discrimination and race, active racism and discrimination. It, it, it has something to do with any number of different policies, but it can be harder to get to those remedies and harder to identify those problems if the thing that most consumes us are the fact that these disparities exist at all. Glenn, I wonder if you have any thoughts. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. First of all, as I've said, I think we, in the long run, are wanting the same thing. The question is whether or not, as a practical matter, the abolitionist move is a uh, sensible move to undertake at the moment. And I say no. Um, I want to say with respect to intermarriage and the diversity amongst the African descended population resident in the United States, the future is assimilation. A hundred years from now, I think you're going to look at blackness the way you look at Irishness or Italianness in terms of ethnic descent. It'll be a coloration, but it won't be a defining feature. And there's all the action is at the boundaries. Uh, you can have a man, Barack Hussein Obama, who has no 
African slave ancestors, who's nevertheless a tribune of quote-unquote black people. You can have that in the first part of the 21st century. You're not going to have that in the latter part of the 21st century. Um, I, I agree with the, the stipulation that as individual freely choosing autonomous beings, we must not allow ourselves to be put into a box defined by our race. I agree with that. I agree that much of the political representation undertaken on behalf of blackness is a category mistake because the real issues are class and they're not race and they're elided when you put it in those terms. And I agree with Shelby that often that's a move, a corrupt move done uh, for the sake of power. Um, so, you know, that, that's, kind of, uh, that, that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. I'm saying let's make use of the cultural inheritance that we have here in the United States in terms of the narrative and the accounts that we give of who we are and where we're going. I want those kids with or those orphan kids without parents to be adopted. If white people would adopt them, I'd be happy. That would be fine by me. We don't live in that world. I want them to be adopted. I want Pastor Corey Brooks of Chicago, who's on the South Side fighting gang violence and trying to give hope to people through his project Hood, uh, helping others obtain destiny. I want him to get the money that he needs. I want him to be able to build the community centers that he wants to build to serve those uh, people. And I want him to inspire those youths. And if he can do it in a colorblind fashion, that's fine. But we're in the year 2022, and that's the south side of Chicago. So could you could you say a word? I was going to ask you if you, you would say a little more about where the culture is now. I can't pick up the New York Times and read stories about race without seeing very aggressive, uh, affirmative nods towards racial identity, like the determined, determined effort to make us think about those things and frame things in that way. Uh, well, I'm, I'm with Shelby on that. I mean, but, but you said a moment ago that you have an expectation the culture is headed in one direction. And the reality is that uh, uh, I mean, amongst intermarriage, the, amongst intermarriage the, is up. As well, you that's know. true. But amongst elites, like even even with intermarriage, I've heard Halle Berry and Barack Obama talk about the way that they self-identify. And they both invoke the one drop rule and insist that they view themselves yeah. as black. And, and I suspect that the, the tendency is more in that direction, especially amongst elites. That's the way that these issues are pre, pre, are often presented in these very binary white let lowercase w white and, 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 and i'm black. against that and i'm against that and black lives matter is another in, uh, instantiation right. of the phenomenon that you're talking about and i'm against that but uh, but i'm saying that that's where the culture actually seems to be headed and it and it, does that not you give mean you towards some sharpening pause? racial distinctions that's, that's where the talking heads are going that's where the elite democratic party mm -hmm. uh, uh based uh, advocacy community is going. I don't think that's where the people who are actually making decisions about whether or not to marry somebody who's in a different racial group than they're going. Sure. I think those numbers are going up inexorably. They're going up. So, you know, my long run forecast is that we won't be able to have this conversation in 50 or 75 so. years. Yeah, I hope so. That's true. That's true. I have a grant. Can you hear? Can I yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I have a grandson who is Mexican, Jewish, white, black, and black. Actually, granddaughter as well. We should mention uh -oh. Thomas Chatterton Williams here. Everybody should read his book, Portraits in Black and White. Isn't that what he calls that book? Mm -hmm. He's an African-American of mixed racial heritage who is married to a woman who is not black. And he thinks about his own children in terms that he says these categories make no sense whatsoever for my kids. And it's time that we 
think beyond them. And yes, it is time that we think beyond them. But I'm still, you know, I'm well, I got my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that. That that is the your story, and and uh, that is your identity. But <laughs> you know, and uh, you and, and you have every right to stick to it. But uh, there are people who are who have a different. They have different rivers running in them. And, and understood. I wonder if uh, because you know. the what the bottom line here is that within the group itself, when I was growing up, I go out to play in the morning and they'd say, "You think you white, don't you?" <laughs> and then yeah. on the and then on the way home from school, they would say, "You a nigga like the rest of us." Those are black people <laughs> talking to you like that. Black people. I grew up in an entirely black world. I wonder if everyone would be willing to offer some concluding thoughts. Uh, Bob, I'll turn to you first. Just some concluding thoughts. Um, Well, just to answer the question then, that is, um, I think that what the left has done effectively has really hijacked the rich legacy of the civil rights movement. I think blacks have worn the thorn worn the thorn of crown, uh, uh, um, crown of thorns of slavery and discrimination, but others are appropriating that. I saw a cartoon many years ago of a black man with an Afro holding a black power sign, and, and you had gays and women and all that saying, what is he doing in our movement? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, again, my political philosophy is radical pragmatism. I'm a cardiac Christian. My, my desire is to work within my community. I, I did a uh, the Dr. Phil show that will air the first week in November. And on it, I said we need to have a one-year moratorium in whining about white folks. <laughs> and we need to use that time to address the enemy within. And I'm using it to, to reduce gang violence as we have in the past. Uh, by leaving white folks out the room for a whole year when we can adjust the enemy within. We have a moral and spiritual freefall that everybody's in that is consuming white kids in and, and, and Silicon Valley. The, the suicide rate is six times the national average. The highest uh, death rate in Appalachia's prescription drugs and it's homicide in the inner city. We're not going to address that crisis if we have to look at each other through a racial prism. So I think there's, we have a larger crisis to face, and that's why I'm trying to deracialize race. Thank you, Bob. Shelby? Well, I, I, I'd uh, be brief with it. My, my feeling is the biggest problem that we have in black America is, and, and what keeps us down and distinguishes us in a negative way is that the one thing we don't have four centuries of experience with is freedom. And, and that, that it just simply is not a part of that. That's, that is what oppression is, is the denial of freedom. When you are not free to agent your own future, you adapt to whatever is. Um, one of the problems of black American culture and history is that we adapted probably way, way too much. 
we we and it, it's a it's a kind of negative in our in our cultural history that we didn't fight to the death that we didn't Patrick Henry that we found a way to adapt to a system that completely oppressed us in every conceivable way. We carry that, I think, uh, and and it's it's uh, it, it's a source of bad faith within the group. Uh, it's it's a source of uh, uh, you know I can't I can't swear in this dignified forum, but uh, an person ain't you know what is something I also grew up with in the black community, as though don't tell me I'm. I'm, I'm like everybody else. There's a sort of sense. No, I'm, you know, I'm on the lowdown. Um, we have a lot of we have a lot of work to do there, uh, and we. But the main problem, I mean, let me not stray. We, history denied us, weakened us, so that we are not able to join the modern world uh, in an easy way. And we keep putting the emphasis on racism and collective action, whether you're race and all this sort of thing. When the problem is we are we are not competitive. We're undereducated. We're culturally backward. We have some some values that are self-destructive. Uh, we have a lot of work to do before we get. We 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 actually have the dignity. Win for ourselves the dignity. Uh, that makes us on par with with other groups, with other with other elements of society. That's entirely on us, and uh, we we need to get busy with that uh, at this point in time. But I want to say more, but time is passing. So, I'll turn it over to Camille, and then we'll have Glenn conclude. Camille. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to to be in this conversation because there's so much being said by everyone that I find myself in deep agreement with, but then there are aspects of it that I want to critique without being too forceful because again there's this deep this deep agreement. But I think that there is there's a very real sense in which and Barbara Fields, I think um her and her sister Karen's book Racecraft um is is a essential reading. Uh, especially chapter four <laughs> for most people um, because it's a book that forces us to wrestle with the way that race operates as an ideology, the way that it infects our thinking, the way that we reinforce it in various ways. And even uh, the, the, the things that I just heard you saying Shelby, about us and the, the difficult things that need to be exercised and addressed those those aren't my challenges. They are challenges that need to be addressed, undoubtedly. But those are challenges that we can perhaps address corporately in some sense, but only a particular individual taking particular actions in their own life can actually rectify these these problems. And I, I to the extent right. we're, and to the extent we're concerned about the children in Appalachia and the children in, in Baltimore City, the reality is that the problems they're confronting oftentimes are very much the same um, and that the deprivations that they're experiencing are very much the same and it isn't amplified or diminished by the fact that you know more white people are actually economically well off in this country relative to the number of black people that doesn't do anything for that kid in Appalachia um, I think there's a there's a challenge perhaps that I'd like to issue which is just for us to all be more cognizant of the ways in which 
we engage with race and we talk about race and we even race ourselves, how that can have a meaningful impact on the kind of policy prescriptions that are com- that we come up with and the ways that we approach um, particular problems and talk about um, the issues that are of most importance. I, I don't like the the phrase black on black crime. I don't think the crime is being perpetrated because people are black. It's being perpetrated in particular areas. All crime is is not all crime, but much uh, much violent crime is intra-racial. But there there's something about acknowledging that fact that I think can be very powerful and can undermine a lot of the potential shortcomings of of having people obsess over and of what is in many respects a kind of cosmic cosmetic attribute of a problem that we're all deeply concerned about. Glenn. Okay, guys, first of all, what a wonderful conversation. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very proud here at the Glenn show to be hosting this, uh, this convocation. Secondly, I want to see the big point about we individual human beings are not our race. Camille and Shelby, you're right about that. I mean, Ellison, and I know you know this, Shelby, what's the past? You say skin and blood don't think, something like that. I mean, I'm not my race. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of James Joyce and portrait of the artist as a young man. Uh, there's a passage there. He says, you know what happens to when a soul of a man is born in this country? There are nets thrown at it to uh, hold it back. Mm. I'll try to turn these nets into wings and fly by them. Do you know what? Ireland is, this is Joyce, Ireland is the old sow that eats her pharaoh. Mm. And yes, hyper-race consciousness is something that can consume and extirpate the individual spirit. Uh, I'll just stand by this. If you want to do something not about black-on-black crime, about the god-awful level of violence on the ground in cities around this country, you want to change that? You want to actually get them to put down that gun and to stop killing each other? You want to reach them? You want to move them? Teach them who they are, where they've come from, and what they owe to their God and to their country and to their people. I would use race in that catechism even as I'm affirming the long-run ideal of eschewing race altogether. We're not there yet. Thank you very much, everyone. All right, it's been The Glenn Show. Thanks for listening.